0: We're back on our regular schedule now, gone through Advent and Christmas season, and on the first Sunday of the month we've been preaching out of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a remarkable book. One of the, there's a refrain all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that says, there's nothing new under the sun. And the more we read through it, the more we're finding out that that's true. And apparently, in ancient Israel, they had trouble with the love of money. And so we're going to look at that today. Today we're going to talk about money as a very bad God. Would you please stand one more time for the reading of God's Word? The Word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So let's listen intently together to the reading of God's Word. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 starting at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him and over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, for when goods increase, they increase Who eat them, and what advantage has their owners but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept to their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. With joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, and yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for, for your word and how it speaks to us. Lord, as Antonio said earlier, we are so prone to give ourselves over to the worship of other gods that fail us, and we keep doing it, Lord. we it not for the power of your spirit, we would never stop, but we would continue to be frustrated and put to shame by false gods who cannot deliver on their promises and so lord we pray uh, that through your word today and the power of your spirit speaking to us through it that you would help us to relax from this insane quest for money and fame and power in the world and to rest in your goodness and to rest in your good gifts um as we wait for Jesus to come and get us. Help us to do good, Lord. Help us to love you. We pray that you give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, there's a story by the, uh, the Pardoner. He's called the Pardoner. He's the man who sells indulgences or he sells relics of the church for forgiveness of sins. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is a medieval piece of literature. And he tells a story about three young men who go looking for death. And they find an old man along the way. The old man tells them to go and find a tree at the end of the lane And they go to this tree and and instead of finding death there, they find eight baskets full of gold and they rejoice. And so they decide to wait until nighttime where they can then take the gold and hide it and they draw straws for who can go to the store and get food and provisions for the night. The youngest man draws the straw, he goes to the store and he decides that he wants all the wealth for himself. And so he buys two bottles of wine and some rat poison and he poisons the wine And while he's gone, the other two men decide that they would like the gold for themselves. And so they conspire as soon as he gets back to stab him to death and to kill him. And so when the young man comes back, that's exactly what they do. And then in their victory, they grab the two bottles of wine, celebrate their victory. And the old man's uh, directions then came true. They did indeed find death under that tree in the form of the lust for money. Now, the, uh, the awful and the ironic thing about the story is it's, it's told by the pardoner. The partner is the man who, uh, who, who sells relics uh, to uh, people in the church. To, to He sells forgiveness. He sells indulgences from the Pope, and he freely admits in the story that he is an immoral man who's addicted to much money and much wine, and he's perfected his craft of telling stories like this to bilk people into giving him money. And so he admits that although he is an incredibly immoral man, that he's able to tell a moral story. And it puts all these awful twists and complexity into the story of the psychology that this man uses and uh, how, we, how easily we fall for it and just how the, the lust for money and the desire for money penetrates even the thickest walls that we put up, even the walls of the church. Uh, There's something about the promise of money that is able to twist our moral compass just enough so that we will do things that we would never ever do otherwise. It has the ability to just twist us and that something is our belief that even contrary to evidence that we see that if we had enough money we would be able to ease the suffering of our broken hearts that money's, the, money's gonna fix it. Amen? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's get honest. Everybody, at least at least a little bit, we think if I just had a little more money, things would be so much better. But that's not true. It is not true. Money does not have the power to heal a broken heart. And so the preacher, the writer of this passage, is gonna teach us that today by telling us the big idea, the main point of this passage, the one thing he wants us to understand more than anything else is that no amount of money can heal a broken heart. In fact, it can only make it worse because God alone has the power to heal our hearts now and forever through Jesus. Let's look at that one piece at a time. No amount of money can heal a broken heart. It only makes it worse. Ecclesiastes 5:10: "He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And he gives two big reasons why this is true, two big reasons why it is that money will never satisfy us. The first one is that money is an unreliable God. Money' is an unreliable God, wealth and honor that comes from it are so dangerously unstable that you can lose them overnight and then have nothing. There's a uh, story that goes around. I checked it out on Snopes today. It's actually true, so I can read it. uh, About a meeting in 1923 in Chicago, the East Lake Hotel in Chicago, of the nine wealthiest men in the United States. Their combined wealth was something like half the entire GDP of the United States. It's just a massive amount of wealth. President of the largest steel company, president of the largest utility company, uh, a wheat speculator, the president of the largest gas company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, a member of President Harding's cabinet, a bank president, uh, president of the world's biggest monopoly, and and one of the most famous Wall Street investors of his time, They all met at this meeting in 1923, uh, and then 25 years later, they tracked these same men to see what had become of them. And 25 years later, Charles Schwab, the president of the largest steel company, died broke. Samuel Insull, the president of the largest utility company, died broke. Howard Hobson, the president of the largest gas company, suffered a mental breakdown from the stress and ended up in an insane asylum. Arthur Cooten, the wheat speculator, died broke. Richard Whitney, president of New York Stock Exchange, had just, been, had just been released from prison 25 years later. The member of President Harding's cabinet, a man named Albert Fall, had just been given a pardon from prison so that he could die at home. Leon Frazier, the bank president, killed himself, Ivar Kruger, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, killed himself, and Jesse Lorson Livermore, possibly the most famous Wall Street investor of his time, a week after Thanksgiving in 1940, walked into the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York, he had two drinks, scribbled out a note to his wife, walked to the cloakroom, sat on a stool and shot himself in the head the nine wealthiest men in the world. How could that possibly be? I mean, does that trip you out? I mean, I think, man, if we just had a little more money, it'd be okay. But these guys had all the money in the world, and obviously it was not okay. Same thing happened in 2008 in the financial crisis. Uh, there's stories of Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods tells a story of five or six financers, CEOs, corporate CEOs, that just shot themselves in their office as the stocks crashed. Because once the money failed, once their God failed, once they worshiped what's what they trusted in was taken away, they had nothing but fear and anxiety, and it caused them to take their lives. They thought the money was so important and that losing it was so awful that they couldn't imagine going on with life without it. The last guy, Jesse Livermore, he had $5 million left. <laughs> but he'd lost $95 million over 10 years and he was like, I can't live on $5 million. I, can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I could do it, I'm telling you. I think I could do it. But Nisa, can we do it? We could do it, girl. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, Jesse said five million, not enough, and he uh, blew his head off in the cloakroom of the Sherry Netherland Hotel. Could not, he thought it was it was so awful. You know, as, as I was meditating on this, it, it struck me that we all believe the same thing. Whenever there's a news story about some rich, famous rock star or or movie star who dies young, what do we say? We go. <gasps> oh, that's so tragic for someone to be so talented and so rich and lose it. And then there's there's not, not a word about the 900 children that died for not having clean water the same day. Why? Why do we make such a big deal about the rock star who dies and we seemingly don't care at all about children who die in poverty? It's because we buy into it. Even we in the church, we buy into this ideal that money is so important that to have it and to lose it and to, or to, is, is so tragic that it's international news. We all buy it. The second thing, it's even worse what the preacher says about why, he will, why we will never be satisfied with money is, is, is that the pursuit of money can prevent us from enjoying the things that are truly good in life. The pursuit, the mad pursuit of money keeps us from enjoying God's really good gifts to everybody, to us. If you look at verse uh, six, chapter six, verses one through six, it, picks up, it gives you a picture of this man who's got everything he could possibly want twice over. He's lived a long life. He's got tons of kids. This is, this is a picture of Hebrew wealth. This guy has lived to be 100 years old. He has 100 children. He's got, he's got everything. He is the He's in, the, he's in the 1% of Hebrew opulent. He's on the lifestyles of the Hebrew rich and famous. Uh, and, and then it, but it, it's a picture of this man who has everything that he could possibly want and still he is miserable. He lives a long life with all the money and still he's miserable. And the, guy, the, the author, the, the preacher goes so far as to say that a stillborn child is better off then this guy who lived a long life with opulent wealth. The Bible. Bible says that. Not me. Bible says that. Why is that? Why would that be? He's saying, he's saying that the, 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 the trouble and the stress and the anxiety that comes from building up that much wealth, it so overwhelms, it so so overtakes the 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 relief that it brings. The stress it produces is so much more than the stress it relieves that it ends up just causing people to be anxious and upset. The the full stomach of the rich won't let them sleep. They're just constantly terrified of the next recession. When's it gonna hit? When's I gonna lose my money? When am I gonna be down to five million and have to shoot myself in the head? And yet the stillborn child, it says, the thing that's better about the stillborn child, it finds rest. And this man does not. Neither in this life or the next. You know, a literal translation of verse 513. It says, um, 513 says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. A, 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 Closer translation really would be in that the, riches were, kept by the own, riches, uh, riches were kept by their owners to his own misery. The riches made him miserable. They made the suffering of his broken heart even worse. Why? Why? John Piper likes to say that sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in Christ. And I think we could say almost the same thing another way, looking at this exact situation. And I've been really thinking about the Lord's Prayer this week, the last few weeks, and especially thinking about the the petition of giving us this day our daily bread. I've been thinking a lot about the fact that sin or idolatry, what we're really talking about right here, making something more important to you than God, making something else that doesn't have the power of God to be God in your life, whatever that is. Could be money, could be sex, could be fame, could be power, uh, could be anything. Drugs, you name it. Uh, I've tried them all, they all failed. Sin idolatry is what the heart separated from God does to find temporary relief from the pain of life. Let me read that again. Sin, or the idolatry of sin, is what the heart separated from God does to find temporary relief from the pain of life. In other words, there's only so much guilt, there's only so much resentment, there's only so much anger that the human heart can hold before it necessarily reaches out for something to relieve that pain. And in the absence of God, we take a counterfeit God, whatever the best thing available, drugs, sex, fame, power, relationships, whatever. Um, What the Bible, what this passage calls, you know, we get to be in so much darkness and vexation and heart sickness and wrath that we'll reach out for anything to ease the suffering of the pain. And that's what idolatry is. It's, It's grabbing on to something that is a counterfeit God but it never works in the long run. And we know this. Do we know this? I know this. It never works. Why? Because that thing doesn't have the power by the Spirit to to give you power, to give you joy, to give you freedom. The things that we're really trying to suck out of these other things, they always, always, always fail. And we know this. And verse 7 is kind of a summary of the whole part of this, chap, of this passage about the tragedy of trying to find temporary relief in idolatry. The poetic nature of Hebrew is such that the words in Hebrew can mean a, a bigger range of things than, say, words in Greek or even in English. And so the job of the translator is to take these words and try to translate them within the context and within our own understanding and sometimes what inevitably happens is, with Hebrew especially, is that there's always a certain amount of translation or interpretation that happens in the translation. And verse 7, look at verse 7, it says this, All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. The word appetite there is really soul. And, uh, and so that the translator is trying to make sense of this within... Within the, within the context of what we're talking about, talking about how uh, feeding our appetites never give us satisfaction. But, and that may be the correct interpretation, but as I was reading through this over and over, what if he was trying to point out an awful irony and the translation we should keep it at soul and instead it should say all the toil of man is for his mouth, meaning our sensual appetites, but... His soul is never full. In other words, the reason we find misery in wealth and misery in riches is because we're trying to fill the wrong gaping hole. There's a gaping hole of, of, of our suffering. We're trying to fill it with material things, but material things do not have the power to fill a spiritual vacuum. And so the man who trusts in riches will never, ever be satisfied with riches. No amount of money, fame, sex, drugs, rock and roll, or power can ever fix what is really wrong with us because no material thing can fill a spiritual hole. And trying to do so only makes it worse because it distracts us from the only thing that can. The only thing that can... Is God Number one, no amount of money can heal a broken heart. It can only make it two. Number two, God alone has the power to heal our hearts now and forever through Jesus. Look at verses uh, 18 through 20. 5, 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. A few months ago, I, we were preaching are uh, preaching on Ecclesiastes three, and the, the big idea of that passage was that God, our Father, is in control, making all things beautiful. So, we should trust him and enjoy life. We should trust him and enjoy life. Preacher saying a similar thing here. I had a good friend that was here that night, and he um, had a big problem with that last point about enjoying life because he was so angry and upset about what he wanted and couldn't have that he was finding it troublesome to enjoy life. And so, he thought I was taunting him or that God was taunting him I can't enjoy life because I can't have this idol (laughs) (laughs) you suck (laughs) what he totally missed the point right and the point is this that a big part a big part of the solution not the whole and there's nuances here but the big part of the solution is of the pain of suffering is uh, a big part of the solution and almost always, almost always the solution to our darkness, our vexation, our heart sickness, our anger is to be grateful for, to God for what we do have and to trust him for the rest. To be grateful to God for what we do have and to trust him for what we don't. And verse 8 summarizes this. It says that. This is what verse 8 means. It poses a question. Verse 6-8, it poses a question. It says, what does the wise poor man know that the rich fool doesn't? I'm summarizing. He knows this. He knows that enjoying what God has given us in his perfect wisdom is better than the wandering lusts of our hearts Trying to scheme and manipulate for what he has not given us. That causes more pain. Being grateful for what God has given us. And so we could say that being grateful and enjoying the good gifts that God has given us um, is a big way to alleviate that heart sickness that we feel, the the pain of, of suffering under the curse. So being grateful and enjoying the good gifts that God has given has the power to heal our hearts now. <sighs> enjoying God's good gifts now has the power to heal our hearts now. We, I was talking with somebody, maybe it was Nisa, I don't remember. We were talking about, there's only there's, 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 you, either, you either grow old and gracious or you get old and you get grumpy. There's not a whole lot of middle ground in there. You know, because as you go, as you get older, you either learn to be grateful for what you have, or you just keep getting more and more bitter for what you don't. One of my favorite stories is a, a story of a, a family. They were putting their, their grandmother in um, in assisted living for the first time. Mrs. Her name is Mrs. Green, and they walked in. They're walking her up to. Um, they're walking her up to uh, her new apartment, and she says to the to the assistant, she goes. She goes, oh, I just love it. And they're all, Mrs. Green, you haven't even seen it yet. She's like, oh, I don't have to see it. I know, I'm just going to love it. Because she had gotten, her attitude was, she had gotten so accustomed to being grateful for the things that God had given her. It didn't matter what the apartment looked like. It was going to be beautiful. It was going to be great. Because she knew how to be grateful for the things that God has given us. And I think that, I mean, I think that's a big deal. I think that's an important thing to understand what he's trying to tell us here. When we go, he's it, telling us, in a certain sense, to go back to basics. In other words, when we're in counseling, counseling situations, here's the, 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 t- the traditional thing is somebody comes a pastor they say or an elder in the church they go we need i need counseling I, I got some sexual addiction going on so we find a book on sexual addiction and we sit down and we hit the sin head on we talk about sexual addiction and then we pray and we do that for six or eight weeks and then we say good luck but in sports when you have a problem in sports as an analogy if there's a problem in your game somewhere they take you back to the very fundamentals of the game and you practice the very basic things the very fundamental foundational things and so i think a, a, a strategy for counseling which is then a strategy for all of us in dealing with what do we do when we have we feel we experience pain from the fall and we want to reach out for this Quick fix that we know is going to produce suffering later on down the road. What do we do? It's, let's. I think a good idea is to go all the way back to the very fundamentals and think about just a life that is based on the simple worship of God and a life that is based on giving thanks to God for all the good things that we have. I've started in counseling it to start. Somebody comes to me and they say, I'm blazing sex addiction. I can't stop going to the club or whatever. My first move is, we've been, is to read Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's this book about how the, lit, the liturgy of the church bringing what we do in worship to everyday life in such a way that it trains our minds to worship God. For example, the first chapter of lit, Liturgy of the Ordinary talks about making your bed in the morning and how the author says she's not, a, she's not a bed maker, she just was a messier, a messy bed maker. Because you're going to get in it again that night, right? But she had friends that said, no, you need to make your bed and, then, and see what happens. And so she started making her bed and the first thing she did every morning, instead of getting on her cell phone and checking all her messages and, and setting her day in a pattern of slavery to technology, she would, the first thing she would wake up, make her bed, sit on the foot of the bed, and say the Lord's Prayer. And what happened, she said from this, was that it created a space of worship in the very beginning of her day that then ended up ruling and ordering the rest of her day. It helped her to remember to be grateful for the bed that she had, to be grateful for the warm, safe place to sleep every night, to be grateful for the friendships that she had, to be grateful for her husband, to be grateful for the love that their family shared, to be grateful for a refrigerator full of food, to be grateful for a church family to walk through this evil life together with, to be grateful to God for all his myriad good gifts along the way that help us to remember that this is a short pilgrimage (laughs) And that God is taking care of us and the little things as we go. And as she did that, it reset her whole life. It reset her foundation of living on a basis of being grateful to God for all these things. So then when it came to the thing that she couldn't have, when it came to the thing that we can't have, it's not as powerful. It is not nearly as powerful. And so the author, the pastor, the the preacher encourages us to enjoy life and to enjoy the good things that God has given us. And he says, maybe God might give you a lot. God may bless you with wealth. May God may bless you with an abundance of things. And even that person in their position is to enjoy those things which in the context of the whole Bible always means in generosity, considering others more important than yourselves, which is why he prefaced this whole passage with the oppression of the poor. Uh, It's a way of saying that the poor are oppressed because every level above them is hoarding wealth and using wealth for their own benefit. But the blessing of the land is is is, is is cultivated fields for the king. In other words, a king who uses all of his resources to produce prosperity for the whole land so that everyone is blessed. So God may give us a lot. We as Americans, God has given us a lot. But the point remains the same, that being grateful and enjoying the good gifts that God has given us has the power to heal our hearts here and now. And second, that God, through Jesus Christ, has the power to heal our hearts forever. I want you to look at the very last verse. Verse 520. It says this, that if we do this, if we focus on the good gifts of God that we do have, we trust God for the rest, then, 520, that we will not much remember the few days of this life because God keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. that if we do that, our days will be spent not remembering the pain of of the fall, the pain of the curse, the pain that we experience in this world, in this life, but we'll be occupied with the joy of God's good gifts day by day. A good translation of that verse, I think, would be that God gives us good things in this life to help it go by quickly. And if that's true, what is that last verse implying? I think it's implying this. If it's true that that's what it's saying, then there's an acknowledgement in here that we live, first of all, all the days of our life under the pain caused by the fall. There's an acknowledgement of that. I was reading through Genesis 3 again this week. I was just surprised at how many times it said, in pain you'll do this, in pain you'll do that, in pain you'll do this. And so there's an acknowledgement that to live in this evil age is painful. But it's also an acknowledgement that the good gifts of God in this life are not his final gift to us. But... They are his mercy to help see us through this evil age. They are to help us to not remember or to dwell on the suffering of this life so that we can pass our time quickly and be occupied instead by the joy that God gives us in these simple things in life. And if God is saying that the purpose of his giving us good things in this life is to help us to pass through this evil age as quickly as possible to make the time fly, as it were, to not be in remembrance of the evil of this age, then how is this not a promise of a better world to come? A world where there is no more oppression of the poor, where there is no more violation of justice and righteousness, where the pain of living under the curse no longer tempts us, to find refuge in greed or gluttony or vanity or pornography or the illusion of eternal youth or any other foolish thing we run to. A world where futility is swallowed up in satisfaction and God gives us the expanse of the cosmos with all things in them and the power to enjoy them. A world without darkness, vexation, sickness, stillborn children, anger, wrath, but peace and blessing and life forever. A world where there is no more wandering lust of the soul because we are totally satisfied in Christ. That is what the hope of the Christian life is. This is what Jesus has purchased for us with his blood. It means we need to be patient, but it also means that we are able to persevere in hope and God promises to give us everything that we need for life and godliness in the meantime. Amen? Amen. Amen. No amount of money can heal a broken heart, it only makes it worse. But God alone has the power to heal our hearts now and forever through Jesus. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your table, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all the times we seek. We seek relief from the pain of this world in some temporary thing that does not have the power to heal us but only makes us worse. But we pray for your spirit to empower us so that we would know these things, Lord. We pray that you would show us the things of the world for what they are. We pray that you would help us to enjoy them in goodness and to share them with one another and to be thankful to you when we do receive them and to receive our competent portion of them and to enjoy them together and to give thanks to you for this, Lord. But help us not to get sold out under them. Help us not to place our hope in these things. Help us to place our hope in you and the promises that you have made. And the new heavens and the new earth that you are preparing for us. Because your promise is absolutely sure. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.